Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. October marks Black History Month, and it is this month that the Welsh Government announced they would be making Black, Asian and Minority Ethnicities History compulsory in the Welsh curriculum. Tonight we speak to Charlotte Williams OBE, Honorary Professor in the School of History, Philosophy and Social Sciences at Bangor University, who led the working group who recommended this hugely significant and overdue change. Hello Charlotte. Hello. Uh, thank you very much for coming on to speak to us. So in 2020, you were appointed by the then Minister for Education to chair the working group called Communities, Contributions in Kenevin, Black, Asian, Minority Ethnicities in the New Curriculum. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about the process that working group took in order to come to the conclusions you did? Yes, of course. Well, thank you for having me, Matthew. I'm very delighted to be giving an account of the work that we have done in the Ministerial Working Group. So going back to last July, August, when I was appointed by the then Minister of Education, Kirsty Williams, we convened a working group which was made up of a range of uh, individuals who had skills as teacher practitioners, as academics, as heritage people, historians, so on and so forth, and people with direct and lived experience. And this group were charged, of course, with having a look at the ways in which we could work towards embedding these perspectives in the new curriculum. And this entailed thinking about resources, it entailed thinking about professional development, um, but it also entailed thinking about what schools generally would need to do in order to make these recommendations live and live. And we were very clear that we were going to be an active working group, which meant that we were going to look at the evidence, the available evidence. We were going to carry out some focus groups ourselves as part of the process, which we did with teachers, with pupils, with educators from black and minority backgrounds themselves, with governors and so on and so forth. And that we would produce along the way little artifacts, I suppose, I call them little, they're quite significant artifacts that would keep our audience engaged somehow, you know, so we didn't just want to be a sort of sit and talk group. We wanted to start to produce things that were going to be helpful in pushing forward this agenda. And you'll know that the background to it, of course, was um, Black Lives Matter campaign, a huge petition put forward that got 20,000 signatures in two days and ultimately got somewhere near 35,000 signatures pushing for more attention to black and minority perspectives in the curriculum. And, you know, this reflected work that had been going on for some time, you know, by NGOs and other activists who really wanted to see, see this happen. So, yeah, it's a great step. I was going to ask to what extent do you think the Black Lives Matter movement and obviously the huge swell of feeling that came from the killing of George Floyd led to these changes happening quicker than they may have otherwise happened? Yeah, I think that was definitely an accelerator because uh, when I was briefed in taking on the role, you know, I became very quickly aware from key stakeholders that people for some 13 or 14 years had been from grassroots groups had been asking for attention to this issue. And of course, the events of last year produced this kind of critical turning point. And that wasn't only in relation to the curriculum. I think it gave an opportunity for 
the nation to pause and think about and reflect on these dreadful issues of racial injustice. And of course, the Welsh government really cranked up their attention by convening a number of groups that were going to work on a range of issues to do with racial inequalities and of which the curriculum was an important one. So should we go into a little bit more depth about the recommendations of the working group? So what exactly was recommended and and how were those recommendations received at the time? Well, we actually produced some 51 recommendations and we added on a further 42 that the Education Workforce Council had made in their reports about the workforce. So we focused principally on uh, resource development, professional development and continuing professional development and on school policies and practices in relation to building the new curriculum. But alongside our work, the Education Workforce Council were doing work on representation of Black, Asian and minority ethnic educators in the workforce. And they had produced their, they have now produced three reports, but they had produced their second report based on their evidence of the data available on the on the workforce and, and were making recommendations of what needed to be done to encourage more people from black and minority backgrounds into teaching and into educational roles generally in Wales. So we had our 51 and we had these additional ones. Now, in terms of the sort of main thrust of the findings that uh, we had based on our evidence, we made a number of recommendations in an interim report relating to resources and resource development. And I suppose the essence of that was that the resources available to teachers in a format that teachers could use and navigate and, and um, I suppose, expand on, were poor across all the proposed areas of learning and experience, AOLEs as they call them. So there were obviously resources out there. We know there are resources out there, but the selection of those resources was ad hoc. Some schools might have been doing something and other schools not. The platform that we have for supporting teachers in terms of access to resources was very difficult for them to navigate and find useful materials. Yeah, in general, it wasn't a good picture. It wasn't easy for them to utilise resources that we knew were available. But the other thing that we noted was what we might call a resource bias in their selections. When they did choose materials that uh, relate to Black, Asian and minority experiences, they tended to focus on either, you know, I I probably simplify a bit here, slavery, you know, talking about the slave trade and slavery, or they might draw on material from the civil rights movements. So you might find, you know, they were looking at Rosa Parks, as an experience, or they might be using it part of a Martin Luther King speech or something like that, but at a level of abstraction from Wales. I'm not saying the civil rights movement isn't important to Wales, but they weren't using Welsh materials kind of thing or applying the civil rights movement to Wales and its development. And the issue that we had about the association with slavery isn't that, you know, that isn't fundamental and central to what we want them to do. 
But we know from research that if you are that black child in the classroom and the only time you see anything about your heritage or history discussed, it tends to be about the slave trade. It doesn't make you feel that good about yourself. So we knew from research that that was um, a resource bias in, in selection that of resources that wasn't helpful to children and young people from those backgrounds. So, yeah, that was the picture in relation to resources and rather a similar picture in relation to training opportunities for continuing professional development. And what I would say was we found that the workforce were keen and enthusiastic. They wanted to know more, but their competence and their confidence was low. They were afraid, afraid of getting it wrong or, you know, just not confident about tackling some of those big themes in their subject areas. So, yeah, there's a big need. There's a big need to address the deficit. I mean, there was a recent Estin report, wasn't it, that found that teachers needed more professional support in, and that schools in more multicultural areas were usually better at teaching Black, Asian and minority history. Mm. I mean, this all feeds into what you've just been saying. What was your assessment of that report? Did that ring true to, to what you'd learned during the process of your research during the working group? Actually, the um, official responsible for taking forward that thematic review was on our working group as well. So there was a lot of kind of crossover of, of the evidence that they were finding in their uh, review of Welsh history and what we were finding generally. The big difference being their focus is on Welsh history and on history, whereas we were charged with thinking about the whole curriculum. So, you know, I've gone on record saying these issues were just as important to the maths teachers as they are to the music teacher, as they are to the history teacher. So we want to see, you know, engagement across the curriculum. The Estin report thematically was looking at what are you teaching in terms of Welsh history and what of that is black history. So. Yeah, very valuable crossover between um, the sort of interrogating the field. Yeah, and very important to us. Let's let's talk a bit about more the, about your proposals. What was the immediate reaction to the proposals from the mm. working group? Was there any pushback or hostility mm. to the proposals, or was there was there pretty much blanket uh, welcoming of of them? Well. On the part of the Welsh government, there was an absolute and immediate endorsement of the recommendations. And of course, recommendations aren't just sort of plucked out the blue. We don't just sit down and make them up. We think very carefully about the evidence. We talk to the organisations that we want to make some change. So, for example, we would talk to Estin about how are you going to sustain the momentum on this? How are you going to enforce this? What will your reviews look like? And, and we build recommendations based on that dialogue and those discussions. So actually, I think the recommendations as a whole were very, very well received, well received by Qualifications Wales, by Estin, by schools, by teacher practitioners, by the regional coordinators, and of course, immediately by the government. And what was so nice was when um, Kirsty Williams received the recommendations and endorsed them. She also immediately announced some pump prime funding to, to get things going, which was, which was excellent. I, I'm assuming the answer is no, but did you, receive, did you see any difference in uh, response or in working relationship when 
Jeremy Miles became education minister as opposed to Kirsty Williams, or was it pretty much, you know, working with one mind on, on how to proceed with this? Mm-hmm. You know, I was getting a little anxious about, you know, the elections and the change of government and how the civil service works and, and, and so on, but actually not. I think we actually have full um, Welsh government endorsement and cross-party endorsement. Um, you know, it might be that um, some political parties might have asked us to go even further than we were going, particularly in relation to Welsh history and Welsh history and black history. Um, but yeah, I, I um, feel as supported by uh, Jeremy Miles as I do, as I did by Kirsty Williams. And since his appointment, he has really pushed forward the strategy, which will be announced shortly the strategy of how initial teacher education is going to respond to greater recruitment of applicants from black and minority backgrounds. So yeah, he's fully on board and I remain involved in the rollout of the recommendations and have been appointed to an advisory or like a steering committee that is looking at how well the policy areas are taking forward the recommendations. So that's with uh, the current ministers. So great. I, oh, there's two points there I'd like to pick up on. Do, do, do you think that these recommendations could have gone any further? Are, are these your ideal set of recommendations? Or do you think there's still areas you could work on to, to better the, the integration of Black, Asian and minority lives into the Welsh curriculum? Mm, that's a nice question. I actually do feel that we extended our reach because we started to talk about um, okay pedagogy and practices um, building curricula but we also were talking about the school as a whole and saying you know there's no point having a, a spot on curriculum if the culture of the school doesn't respond so we were talking about a whole school approach you know the opportunities that the school has to generate dialogue and to take risks and to try new things out and to be imaginative and and so on and so forth. So I I really do feel, Matthew, that we extended our reach um, beyond what we were asked to look at, which was the curriculum and the training. And I pushed very hard, as did others in the group, for um, mandatory training for all teaching staff beyond their initial education, mandatory training as part of their continuous professional development, because that occurs in other professions in Wales, in the health service, in social work, in the police and so on. But there was no mandatory module that teachers would have to do um, to consider anti-racism and to consider how to build curricula that was more reflective of these themes. So I think that's a great one. And I think we pushed, you know, as far as we go in terms of making some of these things stick and hopefully be to be sustainable. Obviously, you talk about your, your role on the steering group to make sure that this, uh, these amazing policies are put into action in the right way. What are your primary concerns about turning policy into practice and, and how this is implemented in schools? This is really a big and tricky issue and always has been. I mean, in all areas of policy, there's a known implementation gap. Um, One of the things about the new curriculum is that it's non-prescriptive, of course. It hands over 
the responsibility to the teachers and pupils to co-produce a, a curriculum that's salient and relevant to them. And that's a marvellous thing, you know, bottom-up and um, permissive is a marvellous thing. But on the other hand, it's a counterbalance to the idea of mandatory. So we say mandatory attention to these issues across the curriculum. But of course, the how much, the how, when, um, is all still left in that really amorphous, permissive sphere. So we're really relying on the um, competence, the goodwill, the enthusiasm of teachers to, to craft the implementation. Now, of course, we put checks and balances in our agenda. Of course we have. But I think we're starting from a very low base in, in many instances in Wales. And we've got a big issue about what we might call salience, because too often people fall back on the demographics and say, OK, the principle underpinning the new curriculum is Canavan. Our Canavan isn't particularly reflective of a, of a diverse world. So why would that be a priority? And of course, we know why it's priority for all areas of Wales, irrespective of the representation of um, demographic representation of black children in the classroom. And, you know, I often do this um, kind of presentation where I, I show a picture of me in my primary school in, in Craigadon School in North Wales, and I'm just the only black child. And the, the, the um, uh, photographer has put me right in the middle. So I'm central to this frame. And then surrounded by my white um, peers. And I use this picture because I say, look, it might have been important to me to hear something about myself in the curriculum, but it's doubly important for all of those other children in the classroom. It's, you know, it's enriching of them, of their education to have other perspectives and knowledges and so on. And the ambition of the new curriculum is to build ethical, and informed citizens of Wales and the world. That's part of our citizenship education for all, not simply as a special initiative for black and minority ethnic children. Do you have any concerns about the disparity that some schools may, you know, may have that tendency to rely on, as you said, known sources such as slavery and, and civil rights that you mentioned before? Because yeah. as we know, Charlotte, Lots of schools are under-resourced and teachers yeah. are stressed and don't have enough time to, to, to craft these new resources or go out and get these new resources, but they do have an abundance of stuff that they've used before. Are, mm. we, are you a little bit concerned that they'll end up falling back on that perhaps less than salient stem of resource? This is also uh, a, a big worry, what we call path dependencies. And we know from general research literature that teachers because of all the kind of constraints that you've mentioned, time and, and, and so on, tend to fall back on, on what they know. They fall back on what they know from their initial teacher education, from their initial training, and they fall back on what they know from resources that they've already gathered. So getting them to make that um, imaginative leap and to really start to engage with new materials and new perspectives is, yeah, it, it's a worry in terms of their confidence to do that and their competence um, to do that. And as I said before, 
we are entrusting each and every one of our teachers and we want to support and enable them to, to do that. And, and that won't happen overnight. We know that won't happen overnight. We know that we need a sustained effort in order to get the type of um, curricula that we want to see manifest in schools right across Wales. And we don't want it to be, how can I say, tokenistic. We don't want it to be disassociated from the big story of Wales, Story Cymru. We don't want it to be disassociated, you know, just interesting little stories from across Wales about uh, an individual um, black presence. Uh, isn't going to tell us anything about the way in which Wales's social, economic and cultural development has benefited from the contributions of Black, Asian and minority ethnic peoples. So, yeah, that's a challenge. The challenge in terms of the selection of material, the challenge in, in terms of resourcing and enabling teachers to be able to utilise materials well. But we've got opportunities and um, we should take them. And those opportunities have been amplified, I think, in the COVID era because we've learnt that engagement means something much bigger and, and, and has a bigger potential somehow than we knew before, just by the use of the virtual platforms like Zoom and Teams and so on. And share things peer to peer, school to school. You can share teachers and expertise and learning and so on so we want to create that kind of environment of ongoing learning that I think will encourage teachers to move beyond the known to into you know building some kinds of new ways of looking. You talk about Story Cymru Charlotte and we you know as we look to build the next chapter in Story Cymru do you think that Wales is becoming a a more tolerant nation and what do you think some of the important steps we can take to make Wales a more tolerant and understanding place? Mm, that's a huge question. I think uh, if I sort of praise here a big thesis that I have here, I think Wales is less defensive in terms of what Welshness is and Welsh identity. I think there is a greater propensity to open up civic inclusivity in terms of identity than perhaps our immediate neighbours who are, you know, really sort of <laughs> undergoing this sort of terrifying incursion into what Britishness is or what Englishness is. We, I, I don't get the sense that that is huge in Welsh thinking. And, of course, the government have made it clear in their new Race Equality Action Plan that we are going to be an anti-racist Wales by 2030, not a non-racist Wales, an anti-racist Wales by 2030. So there's a big ambition coming top down from government, which is conducive to ideas about tolerance and more inclusive society. And they spelled that out in a, in a lot of detail, which is heartening. And in doing that spelling out of a lot of detail, they've engaged significantly with stakeholders in the building of that plan. And so what we've seen is bottom up and top down coming together 
to produce a plan of action for an anti-racist Wales, right? So we've all been able to contribute, which is marvellous. Once we contribute, once we invest, we're going to be invested in that future becoming a reality. And so that's a, a really important step and quite a, a critical moment. Against that, of course, we've got quite a hostile environment more broadly in terms of populist politics, in terms of a sort of abandonment on social media of any kind of etiquette or dialogue, you know, this kind of vitriol that people are subject to on social media and so on. And these are very depressing tendencies. And we've also got a long way to go because if you look at the evidence base and we have all the evidence now across a range of policy fields, um, racial inequalities are, is quite fundamental across our institutions in Wales is quite fundamental. And, and particularly so when you think about who runs Wales, those decision makers, those people in leadership positions and those people who, you know, um, I suppose, sit on boards, committees, and in the Senate, and so on. The, the, the real heart of decision-making in Wales is still very, very white. Um, to end, Charlotte, I mean, someone who probably would have welcomed this move has recently been uh, immortalised with a statue in Cardiff. Uh, you know, for you, how important do you think the Betty Campbell statue is? Well, I absolutely love it. I love it for a start off. It's so big and there's such a big presence in a very important place. And of course, she's an educationalist and a lot of people will be able to talk about the real Betty and, you know, the kinds of contributions that she made. But yeah, think about the, that big debate we've just had about statues. Think about the toppling of uh, statues associated with slavery, and now think about this signal that we can uh, memorialize a, a very positive contribution from a black woman in Wales and, and you know, have that kind of real public endorsement of that. And I, I think it's a very, very significant step. Uh, you know, I'm a North Walian, and I often resist that tendency that's around to. That, that suggests that black people only live in Cardiff. But even um, taking that into account, I think it, it signals something very, very important for us wherever we live in Wales and for all of us in Wales. So I'm, I'm delighted to see it. It's wonderful. Charlotte, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. If people want to find out more from you, where can they find you on Twitter? My handle is at charwilliamsobe. Wonderful. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure, like I said. If you want to hear more from us at Here I, please do not forget to find us on Medium at Here I Blog Cymru, on Facebook at Here I Blog Cymru, and on Twitter at Here I Blog. Thank you for listening to Here I. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.